Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again this morning to the Gospel according to John, chapter 15, where we are going to be reading verses 17 through 21. That's John 15, 17 through 21, and you can find that passage on page 1060 in your pew Bibles. This morning we are continuing to look together at the Christian life or what we have been calling union with Christ and what it looks like in this series, looking at the description of it given to us by Jesus Christ himself to his disciples here in this 15th chapter of John. Jesus has made it very clear that the one who is truly abiding in him, that is, by the grace of God remaining in him, is relying upon him for everything that he or she could ever truly need in this life. He is the very source from which you and I, as his followers, drink in life itself. We are given everything that is needed for our complete joy in this life, as we bring glory to Almighty God and bear fruit for his kingdom. And for his purposes. And it's not just a source of complete joy, beloved. It is the source of it. Jesus said in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. By the grace of God, we abide in Jesus Christ, and we are given... That is, we are equipped with everything that we need in order to glorify Him in our lives. We do not set out and sort of strive to bear fruit. We are told here here that we bear fruit and it's the gift of God to us. It distinguishes us. It marks us out as His disciples, as His legitimate children. Jesus then goes on to describe for his disciples and for you and I the thing, the very thing that is to be the chief characteristic found in the lives of all of those who are his true followers. And that is this pattern of love that has been handed down by the Father. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, I also Have loved you. The Father loved the Son who deserved to be loved, and the Son then condescends and loves those who are His, not because we deserve it, but because He chooses in His grace and His mercy to shower His love upon us. And then He says in verse 12 that we are, in fact, to love one another in the same way that He has loved us. So you see the pattern, the Father loves the Son, and as the Father loves, so the Son loves those who are His. And then Jesus tells us that we are, in fact, to love one another. And He tells us that that love will be present in our lives if we belong to Him. That love itself is the fruit of the gift of faith. It is supplied to us by the source, by the vine. You and I 
living in the vine in union with Christ should love one another. And it should be a love that is far, far more than just simple lip service. It should be a love that is evident, is manifested in our lives as we come alongside of one another. As we lift one another up before the throne of grace, praying for one another, rejoicing with one another, weeping with one another. We should be sharing in our joys and our sorrows, in our fears and our praises. This is Christian charity, beloved. And Jesus clearly states that it ought to be found among his people. Verses 12 through verse 17 then discuss the extent of this love that we have been called to in detail. The two verses serve as bookends to the love that is commanded of us here by Christ. This love is an encouragement to us when we see it in our lives. It distinguishes us in this fallen world as those who are the true children of Almighty God. But there's more to it than just that. And that really is at the heart of what we're going to look at together this morning. This is the second half of Life on the Vine. We are called to trust Jesus Christ for everything necessary in this life. It is in Him and Him alone that we find what we need. He is our salvation. We have life in Him. He laid aside the glory that was His with the Father. And He came down to be everything that we could never be. He is our perfection. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. Knowing what we know, Jesus then calls upon us to recognize the love of God in him and in turn calls us towards that love for one another. And now in the text before us this morning, Jesus begins to move into a discussion about the harsh reality that all Christians must indeed come to grips with. That even as we love one another, the people who belong to Jesus Christ will be hated by the world. And I'd like to dig into that a little bit further this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me again to John 15, verses 17 through 21, and follow along as I read from the Word of God this morning. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Jesus says in verse 17, These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. 
This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have to sit under the preaching of your word. We pray, Father, through the power of your spirit that faith would be nourished and strengthened in your people and that we would live more and more for your glory and your glory alone. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless this time together, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus sort of changes gears here a bit to let his disciples, and to let us for that matter, fully see yet another reason that you and I are called to love one another. Not only is it an encouragement to us, as of course it marks us, as true fruit-bearing branches, abiding on the vine. Not only do we follow the example of love set for us by the Father and by the Son, albeit imperfectly, but we also see here that we, as the true children of God, will face difficulty in this life. And some of that difficulty will come from the world that we live in, that is openly hostile towards God. In fact, we are told that the world will hate us as it has hated Jesus Christ. This morning, it's my hope in this passage before us to point out just a couple of things about the relationship between Christians, true vine-abiding Christians, and the world that we live in what it is that you and I are to expect of it. By looking at the clear teaching of Jesus Christ himself on the subject, to clear up any misconceptions that might exist in the church at large and perhaps even in our own minds. And in the process of that, it is my hope to point us to the very thing that drives our hope forward during our collective sojourning under the sun. After reminding the disciples here of his command that they are to actively love one another, Jesus then tells his disciples a couple of things about the world and its relationship to him. And the first thing that I think we see very clearly here is that according to Jesus in verse 18, the world hates him. And because of that hatred, it will also hate all of those who belong to him. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And he doesn't say that some of the world, he does not say that some of you will be hated. He doesn't mention that there might just be a chance that the world is going to hate only a select few followers of Christ. He says, really quite definitively, if the world hates you, it is because it hated me first. The implication is that if you are hated by the world, then know that it is because of me, Jesus Christ, that you are hated. It's a point of fact. If this happens... Know that it happened because of that. 
And it really sounds like such a simple fact, right? On the surface, we hear it and we all say, well, of course, the world doesn't like Christians. They didn't like Jesus, so they do not like his followers. We know that, right? We say it, we just sort of move on from it. But beloved, I must ask you this morning, do we truly believe it? Do we believe that according to Jesus Christ, that the world will hate us because it hated Jesus? And it recognizes that we are in allegiance with him. Well, I would tell you that looking at the shape of the evangelical church in our own day, we would have to say that many, even most of the church, has not recognized or truly believed that fact. Now, why would I say that? Well, allow me to answer that question by asking you another question. What is the driving motivation behind the current trend in evangelicalism of of changing the traditional concept of how we go about doing church today? You know, I can remember when a particular church, a church which belonged to the Willow Creek Association, founded just outside of the city of Chicago by a man named Bill Hybels, first decided to come to Toledo in the area where I grew up. And they started a huge ad campaign, and the slogan of that ad, or the the catchphrase of that ad, if you will, was something like this. Come to our church because we are not your grandmother's church. That was the ad. And I can remember thinking at the time, I wasn't a Christian. (laughs) I was thinking about, you know, other people. But I remember thinking, why do they not like your grandmother's church? What's wrong with your grandmother's church? What's wrong with my grandmother's church? Why is it that the evangelical church seems to be so set on making the church of Jesus Christ a place where anyone can feel comfortable hanging out on a Sunday or a Saturday evening or whatever night your services are being held. Why? Well, because they either do not take Jesus very seriously here in John 15, or they have been led to believe the lie that they are only hated by the world because they have done something to merit the hatred of the world, something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be undone. Do you understand? They have evaluated the world's hatred, the world's dislike of them, and have said in return, well, they hate us because we are irrelevant. They hate us because we have not adjusted and we are not like them. They do not like us because they cannot understand us. Because of that, they think that we do not and cannot understand 
them. So what's the solution? Unfortunately, beloved, for many, it's that we have to be more like them. We need to show them that we can be just like them. We need to make them comfortable, and we can even call that evangelism. They move to fulfilling the Great Commission by counting the people in the pews, rather than by pointing a dark and dead world to the devastation of sin and the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we can call that outreach. It's a wonderful thing, right? And as the church is filled to the rafters, I can hear a steady refrain of, hey, they like us. They really like us. I want you to understand, I'm not just picking on Willow Creek or that particular model. This is not the minority of the evangelical landscape in our country, beloved. It is the overwhelming majority. Overwhelming. And the trend really knows no bounds. It infects independents and mainline denominations alike. There are conservative, yes, even reformed denominations beginning to succumb to this very pressure right now. And it's not new. It was the driving force behind many of the errors that have infiltrated the church throughout the ages, even from the time of its infancy. This was the cry of the liberal biblical scholastics as they gave in to the pressure of being accepted as proper men of the sciences and traded the supernatural character of God and his word and his work for the superficial nods of approval from their secular counterparts. The authority and the reliability of the word of God were sacrificed on the altar of gaining the respect of men. Receiving the approving nods of men who hated God in the first place. And I could name many, many others who have fallen victim to this same wrong-headed type of thinking. The storied history of the church of Jesus Christ is chock full of them. And why? Because we have come to believe that the world hates us as Christians. Because we have not done a very good job at being like them and understanding them. If indeed that were the problem, then that solution would make sense. But it's not the problem. Jesus says very clearly here that the world will hate us and it has zero to do with our methods. It has nothing to do with our relevance. The world will hate us because the world hates Jesus. Beloved, do you understand that? Do you believe it? Ask yourself this morning, are you even now in your life, seeking the approval of the world around you, desiring to live in their good graces, wanting a life filled with comfort and ease and a steady course of that a boy, that a girl from the surrounding world. Jesus tells his disciples, look, you're going to be hated. And that is the word he uses, hated. The Greek word translated as, as hated is maseo. It, it is a word that literally means the exact opposite of love. Could be translated loveless. 
Jesus uses it to describe the world's feelings for him and for all of those who in this life belong to him and are in union with him by faith. It's the direct opposite of what he expects to find not in the world but in the church. In the church, Jesus says, but those who are his will indeed love one another. The church will be characterized by love. But in the world, it will not be love but the absolute absence of love. It will be characterized by its hatred for Jesus Christ, which is actually hatred for God. And the two will not mingle. We have to see it. They're opposites. The world will hate those who belong to Jesus just as they hated Jesus himself. And if we would look at the history of the church, we would see that this absolutely has proven to be true. These very men, hearing this this word from the Lord, these disciples, as they sat and they listened to this message from their master, will live in relative safety while Jesus is physically present with them in this world. They will not taste the pure hatred of the world until Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and they have been given the Advocate, the very Spirit of Almighty God as their aid in this life. It's yet another picture of the amazing grace of God poured out upon His people. But that hatred is certainly coming for these men. Of the 11 true disciples sitting here, listening to the words of their master on this day, only one, possibly two, will not taste the violent death that is the direct result of the world's hatred for their master, Jesus Christ. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see the rage and the hatred burning in the eyes of the Emperor Nero. As he delighted in having Christians dipped into tar and pitch, impaled on long wooden spikes, and lit on fire as a means of lighting his gardens at night. Witness the hatred of the thousands of Romans who screamed and who cheered in delight as they watched those foolish enough to proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ torn to pieces by the mouths of lions. Unfortunately, we do not have to just look outside of the visible church to see that hatred, do we? We see it in pagan Rome making martyr after martyr out of the early church. We see it in Christ's day as well as, as well in the truly violent ones came not from outside, but inside the so-called people of God. Think of Jesus standing up in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. And he stands to read the scroll that was passed to him. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as Jesus rolls up the scroll, 
And he tells those who are listening to him in the synagogue that day, today in your hearing, this prophecy is fulfilled. And the crowd begins to stir up its hatred, grumbling amongst themselves, asking themselves, isn't this the carpenter's son? Are not his sisters and his mother here among us? Jesus causes them to boil into into a, a full murderous rage by pointing them to the sovereign election of Almighty God, choosing whom he will. Choosing one and not another, all by grace, not of merit, for the purpose of his perfect will. He says to them, listen, with all the widows in Israel, Did not God send Elisha to the widow in Zarephath? And of all the lepers in Israel, did not God choose to heal Naaman, a Syrian? The crowd becomes delirious in their anger and their hatred, and Luke tells us that they rose up as one and led him out of the city to the brow of a hill, where where their intention was to throw him off that hill that he might plummet to his death. These were the supposed people of God. This was in the synagogue. These were not pagans, they were Jews. Surely they claimed God as their father. But their hatred of Jesus was the sole mark of their hatred for his father who had sent him. A rejection of him was a rejection of the Father. Look here at verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus makes it clear for us that we will be hated by the world because he was hated by the world. I love the way J.C. Ryle puts it in his commentary on these verses. He says, Let us settle it in our minds that no holiness of life or consistency of conduct will ever prevent wicked people from hating the servants of Christ just as they hated their blameless master. Again, beloved, I ask you, do you believe that? Do you think that you can have the praise of this world, the love of this world, while you are all the while abiding on the vine, living in union with Christ? Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear the word of God and know what it is that Jesus is saying. Mere profession of faith costs you nothing. But the Christian life, The life as it's been described here for us by Jesus Christ, life on the vine, vital, living, thriving Christianity brings with it a cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is a stumbling block of offense for those who hate you because of Jesus Christ whom they hated first. The church of Jesus Christ, according to Jesus, will love its own, and the world will hate them all. If you are looking to the world for kindness, 
for gratitude, for the good news. I'm sorry. If you are looking to the world for kindness and for gratitude, for the good news of Jesus Christ, you are ignoring the teaching of Jesus here. The world is at opposition with Jesus and hates him. And if you belong to him, if you are truly in him by faith, they will hate you because of him. The second thing I want to point out to you here is that Jesus does not just tell them that they will be hated by the world and that their job is just to learn to live with it. He never tells them to just keep a stiff upper lip and pretend that everything is fine. It's vital for us to grasp this. He's not trying to discourage his disciples here but teaching them this fact for their own good, giving to them a tremendous encouragement. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's interesting here that the first reason that Jesus gives for the world's hatred of the people of God is their election. He reminds them that it's because of his sovereign choice that they are not of the world. It is the glorious electing grace of Jesus Christ that has brought this hatred of the world upon them. They're not to be worrying about gaining the world's approval. This is not something they've been called to fix. They're not to try to gain the respect of the world around them. They are are not to strive to be approved of the world. But like all of life abiding in the vine of Jesus Christ, we are called to simply trust and obey him. Knowing that the hatred of the world is just another factor pointing very clearly to being the legitimate children of our Father in heaven. We've been removed from the world by the power of our resurrected Savior. We're no longer moved by the world's desires. We're no longer adherents to its principles. We're no longer actuated by its aims. We are to be patient in trials. Trusting God that all things truly are working together for our salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. To whom we now belong. All things. Moving heaven and earth to call his children home. We have been removed not just to anything. But to life lived by faith in Jesus Christ. All the things of this world are passing as we move ever closer to that great day when the the veil is removed. And we will worship our King in the splendor of the glory of heaven face to face. The hatred of this world is but another result of life lived on the vine. And another reason to trust wholeheartedly in the Lord Jesus Christ to supply every single need we have in this life. In the life to come. The hatred of the world is really like the seal of the king's signet ring. We've talked about that before. The kings of old had a ring with their seal on it. And when something needed the full weight 
of the king's authority to be recognized alongside of it. The king would melt wax, seal up his message, and then he would press his signet ring into that hot wax, leaving an exact image of his seal upon the wax. Beloved, this is what we have when we are trusting in Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, when we are loving one another, not just in in word, but in deed, even as our Savior loved us. Finally, this is what we have when we are hated by the world which loves its own, but hates Jesus Christ and all of those who by the grace of God have been removed from dependence upon the world and placed in the life of Jesus Christ. You understand? The seal of your king is upon you. We need not waste our time trying in vain to fix that. Do you understand? Do you remember what Jesus said to the crowd around him as he gave the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12? Listen to what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you beloved it's difficult right it's a difficult life the christian life is a difficult life living in this world as a christian is difficult And I'm asking you this morning, do you rejoice to be counted among the sheep of Christ's fold? To live a difficult life? Are you joyful this morning to know that those who hate Jesus hate those who are by the grace of God abiding in Him, trusting in Him, living in union? Or do you cling to the world longing to be loved by it? Longing to be recognized by it? Desiring the empty, vain praises of men over the precious promises of Jesus Christ. I want to close this morning sort of bringing this all together in this way. I I said at the very beginning of this sermon that the reason we are to love one another is because Christ calls us to. He not only calls us to it, he does far more for us than just suggest it for us. He changes our stony hearts and he equips us with this kind of love. It's a gift. It's fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we don't go out and earn. We don't dig deep and find. He gives it to us. It's a love that is born out of hearts that have been filled with gratitude for the salvation that truly is ours because of Jesus Christ and His work. And it's a glorious thing. Beloved, it should fill us with joy. It should fill us with a fervent desire to sing praises to God. But there's more. There's another blessing that I want to point out to you this morning. And I think think you will see it 
If you just take a moment and look around the sanctuary this morning. Not one of you did it. Look around. These are familiar faces, right? Look at the faces that by the grace of Almighty God have been praying with you and over you for the past however many years. Look at the faces that have wept with you at the funerals of your loved ones. Look at the faces that have rejoiced with you at the births and the baptisms and the weddings of your loved ones. I've been here for about 12 years. I've seen a lot of those. Look at the people who would gladly come alongside of you as their brother or sister in Christ and do whatever it is that needs to be done. Look at the faces of those who were here just the other night celebrating the gift, God's precious gift of having our covenant children come together and sing the praises of Almighty God. Beloved, I'm asking you, do you see it? Because it's so easy to get focused on the things that are different. Do you see the love that unites us together as branches of the vine? I want to tell you, I've witnessed it many times. And I'm sure that you have too. Have you looked around? Do you see any of those faces? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be hated by the world because of our common master, Jesus Christ. And if it ended there, we would have to say in at least some respect that this is a negative message. However, praise be to God that it doesn't end there. We are not alone. We are one body in Jesus Christ. And beloved, I pray that you know the blessing in the days and the months and the years to come of being a part of that body. We are united against a common foe and by the grace of God, we've never been called to rough it alone. God in his mercy and his love has called us to do it together in love. Let that be at the very front of our minds. Forget the world and its lies. Forget trying to appease those who care nothing for the vine and life in Christ. Think about why it is that we have been brought together in Jesus Christ. And think long and hard about that bitter criticism or that biting remark that might be on the tip of your tongue. Because I want to tell you something. We need one another in this life. God's brought us together for his glory. 
He's glorified in us. And beloved, in Jesus Christ, that love will grow stronger even as we face the hatred of this world and the difficulties that we must acknowledge of living in a fallen world. We are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are united with him in his death and his glorious resurrection. United with him as those who truly belong to him. And I beg you to never take that precious gift for granted. And by his grace, may this overwhelming truth regarding what we indeed have in common be placed aside because of what we believe separates us. We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us live now as those who know, understand, and truly celebrate that wonderful truth in this life. Amen? Let's pray.